We're going to be in Luke uh, chapter 18, the end of Luke chapter 18. So if you've got a Bible, you can stick a thumb in there right now. Uh, If not, don't worry, I'm going to be reading it. Uh, Do not worry. Surprises. Some of you looked surprised there for a second. Uh, Surprises. Surprises are all about the gap that exists between what you think you know and what you suddenly realize you didn't. Okay, it's that moment of realization that something that you thought you knew about, you realize that you didn't. So, I mean, it could be, it could be a simple thing. Like, you know, just the other week, one of the, one of the absolute classic great surprises happened to me. Reached into my pocket, pulled out a tenner. Absolutely magnificent. What a feeling that is. Absolutely love it. Great. That is a great surprise. That's one of the great surprises. And surprises, I've got this, just, this way of just making you pull a funny face. Have you? And what I thought would be really cool this morning is if we could just all do that funny face. Come on, go with me. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take a photo of all our surprised faces. <laughs> I'll put it on Facebook. It'll be brilliant. Okay, so I'm going to count to three, and then we're all going to do a surprised face. Okay, now we've all got a different one. You know, some of us have several for different occasions, different kinds of surprises. <laughs> but you know what I mean. Okay, maybe we should just have a practice. Okay, I'll count to three. Do your surprise face. Ready? One, two, three. Yes. This is going to work even better than I thought it was going to. Look out for that on Facebook. That is going to be one you won't want to miss. Surprises. None of you thought this message was going to begin that way, did you? You're all surprised. Uh, Relationships, perhaps, are the most surprising thing in life uh, because there is always a gap, uh, in my experience anyway, between what you think you know and and what is the reality. You know, there's always something else to learn. Um, So when I got married to Lizzie, I mean, just so many surprises. It's like... (laughs) You want to paint the lounge what color? <laughs> that kind of thing, all the time. Uh, and of course, becoming a father, good grief. Labor, that's a surprise. <laughs> Yikes, that is a surprise, good grief. And, and it's actually just the beginning of a whole lot of surprises. One of the things that surprised me most when when I just kind of witnessed Maisie being born, our first child, was that I had this kind of strange idea, not even a kind of conscious thing, that somehow she would pop out and pop out. A lot of women are just like, what are you talking about? (laughs) She would pop out and, uh, and, uh, you know, I would kind of think, oh, I recognize you. You know, I know you. And I just kind of saw her appear from the wa- in the water, and I just thought, wow, I don't know you at all. 
I don't know anything about you. And there's just a sudden awareness that this is a whole new life. This is a whole new person. And I'm going to spend the rest of my life trying to get to grips with who you are, to figure out who you are. It was a total surprise. And we're about to have another surprise uh, in, in the first week of May. I'm sure it'll be surprising again. Um, and with Maisie, of course, if you know her, you'll know that that was just the first of many, many surprises. <laughs> kind of round the corner into the front room, and there she is standing on top of the TV or something like that. You pull that face. <laughs> uh, and of course, God is, because God is a person, hope that's not a huge surprise to anyone, um, and we are in relationship with them, God continually surprises us. At least he should do. Um, you see, surprises are good. To lose the capacity to be surprised is to get to the point where you imagine you know everything, which is extremely dangerous and very foolish. But it is possible to live in the expectation of being surprised, which sounds like a contradiction, doesn't it? You could have like walking down the street, like half pulling the face. You're ready. You're ready for the surprising moment. But you can, you can live that way. You can just think, well, this is, life is going to be surprising. So get used to it. It's a good way to be. Listen, um, I'm going to talk this morning about Jesus surprising people. The thing about Jesus is he is constantly surprising people in the Gospels. And sometimes their surprised faces look quite angry. <laughs> and the, the pair of stories that I want us to look at this morning are, are surprising stories in, in lots of different ways. But um, they're also about people coming into, beginning their relationship with Jesus. Now, I know that we're all on a journey with God throughout our whole lives. And sometimes we draw a really hard line, you know, um, in terms of salvation. And we're all on a journey, and I understand that. But there is a moment, there is a moment where we either realize that we have crossed a line of no return or we are consciously aware that we cross into the start of a relationship with Jesus that will go on and grow for the rest of our lives. And these are two stories about two people who take that, to take that plunge, so to speak. And the reason I want to speak about them is because I really believe that we are going to see lots and lots of people take that plunge in the coming season. And we need to be ready for lots of surprises <laughs> if that's going to happen. And so, that's, so be prepared to be surprised and amazed and finally in awe of this amazing Savior. We're in Luke chapter 18 and verse 35. Verse 35. As Jesus approached Jericho... A blind man, uh, in other stories, 
in other versions of the story, we learn his name is Bartimaeus, but we'll go with a blind man, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening, and they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And so he called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way rebuked him and told him to be quiet. But he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. So Jesus stopped and ordered that the man be brought to him. And when he came near, Jesus asked him, What do you want me to do for you? Lord, I want to see, he replied. Jesus said to him, Receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. And when all the people saw it, they also praised God. Now, chapter divisions were not originally in the Bible. I think they were put in, I think, in the fourth century by the Byzantine church. And sometimes they were put in really great and helpful places. And sometimes they weren't. And this is an example of a chapter break which shouldn't really be there. So let's ignore it and read on. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore tree to see him as Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up to him and said, Zacchaeus, Come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. And so he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. And when the people saw this and began to mutter, all the people saw this, sorry, and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, uh, sorry, yeah, Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now, I give half my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for your presence with us. And I thank you, Lord, that you came on a journey to seek and save the lost. And you sent your spirit to carry on that message and that mission. And your spirit fills us for the same purpose. And Lord God, I pray that you would you would surprise us this morning with how you work and you would get us ready for lots of surprises in this next season where we see you doing what you've always done, seeking and saving that which is lost. Fill us with your spirit, Lord. Amen. Amen. Ecclesiastes chapter 4 verse 1 says this, Again, I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. 
I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they had no comforter. Power was on the side of the oppressors, and they had no comforter. This is a story about an oppressed man and an oppressor, and they both find grace with Jesus. What's interesting about these verses is that we can imagine fairly easily that actually God is concerned with the oppressed and that God wants to comfort those who are impressed. What is surprising is that God would be interested in comforting the oppressor. That he would even, that even it could be surprising that oppressors would even require comforting. That's not typically how we see them. And yet here we are in this verse. Power was on the side of their oppressors, and they have no comforter. Frederick Douglass, a 19th century abolitionist, said this, no man can put a chain about the ankle of his fellow man without at last finding the other end fastened about his own neck. That's the thing about oppression. That's the thing about injustice. That's the thing about all sin. It has this circular rebounding effect so that those we sin against are hurt, but actually it has a way of coming back and visiting its own terrors upon the person who commits the sin. And Jesus comes to seek and save both. This is a story about the power of the gospel of Jesus to transform lives and the God who refuses to submit to our expectations. He will not submit to yours. He does not submit to mine. Let's look at verse uh, 35 then of a chapter, chapter 18. Thank you, Andy. <laughs> verse 35. Now, this is what's interesting here is that Jesus at this point in the story, has become phenomenally popular. There are lots of people interested in Jesus. They've heard of the stories of the healing miracles. They've heard the stories of his incredible preaching, the authority that he has, the fact that this man is different, that he, he's bringing something new and fresh to his people. He is becoming incredibly popular. And people were following him in his ministry. But what's interesting is if we understand the context of this period in history, the crowd that is following Jesus at this point is probably not largely made up of people who have come on the road with him, but of people who have come out from Jericho to greet him. The custom in this part of the world, and it's still apparently true today, is that when famous dignitaries, when people of respect and renown come to your city or to your village, 
the elders would come out of the city and greet them and to bring them in. And a crowd would follow them. You see this in, in, uh, in 1964, I think it was, when the Beatles first turned up in America. There were 4,000 people at the airport to greet them. You can still see a kind of echo of the same idea that you go out and you greet them and you say welcome and you bring them in. People came out to see Jesus because they wanted to bring him in to the, the city. What was their expectation? What was the excitement that they had in their heart? Verse 38, the, when, when the uh, blind Bartimaeus calls Jesus the son of David, gives us a clue. Son of David is an astonishingly significant title, rarely applied to even Jesus in the Gospels. It's a messianic title. It suggests that what this crowd saw or thought that Jesus was, was the heir to the David throne. This was going to be the guy. Could this be the guy who was going to restore Israel to its former glory? Could this be the one who was going to lead the people out of oppression the terrible oppression that they were experiencing at the hands of the Romans. Could be the, this be the guy who was going to make us glorious again? Son of David. We have to understand that in this it's part of the story, we're just weeks away, maybe days away from Passover. And what is Passover but the celebration that the Jews had of their liberation from oppressors? It's the story of them getting out of Egypt and getting free. And here is Jesus on the way to Jerusalem, David's city, days before this festival, passing through Jericho, and they are crying to him, son of David. This was an exciting moment, full of expectation, full of excitement. And into this moment... Blind Bartimaeus, well, I guess he kind of disturbs what the elders, you know, the elders, well, we want to make a good show. You know, we've got a feast prepared in the town hall. You know, Doreen's made our best quiche. <laughs> we want, we want, you know, we've given everything a new lick of pain. It's Jesus, he's, he's coming. And Bartimaeus doesn't read the script. He's not interested in making a good impression. He's very interested in being heard. What's amazing is that in the midst of all this excitement about being free from their oppressors, the people in the crowd do not realize that they are oppressing this blind man. And Jesus, when he hears the shouts, he turns the very people who were oppressing him into the ones who convey him into his presence. He says, bring him. He commanded it says, he rebuked them in that translation. He rebuked them. 
This was a big deal. He said, bring them to me. And then he asks him a question, verse 41, which might seem an extremely strange question to ask, maybe even a cruel question to ask. Imagine it in our context. Imagine you're up here wanting to pray for people. Somebody comes out in a wheelchair. Somebody comes out who's blind. What do you want me to pray for? It might seem a difficult question to ask. But you see, in the culture of the time, begging could be an extraordinarily profitable business. There was a requirement in the law to give to the poor. The beggar, therefore, performed a function in the community. He was the man who allowed the people to fulfill their requirements of the law. Which is why beggars at this time shouted out, not give to me, but give to God. He was, an, he, think about this man. He had spent his life blind, begging at the side of the road. He was not educated. He was not trained. He had no employment history. He had nothing, really, except that he was blind. The blindness had started off as a curse, as, as something that was debilitating, but it had become, over the years, the thing that sustained them. And so Jesus asks, what do you want me to do for you? It was a serious question. Do you know, some people come in to this setting and love the community and love the family and love the sense of friendship. It's not a bad question to ask, but what do you want Jesus to do for you? Because the very things that you can see may be holding them back for them and actually even for us at times can be the thing that we're holding on to, the thing that we've taken as an identity. In Mark chapter 10, the story is also told and in it there's, there's an amazing little addition which is important for us. It says this in verse 50 of chapter 10, throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. The cloak, in many respects, is the heart of this story. The cloak is Bartimaeus' source of protection from dust, from wind, from rain, and from cold. It's his source of income. It's the sort of thing that he would spread out in front of him like a busker would put his case out. It's where you put the money when you walk past him. But Bartimaeus throws his cloak away. He's got almost nothing in the world, but the little he does have, he surrenders because he wants Jesus. This is what salvation means. 
This is what salvation means. We have the responsibility and the authority to call out the gold in people who don't yet know Jesus, to encourage them, to build them up, and all these things are wonderful and right and good. But there is something about meeting Jesus that requires all people to give up what they have. When I became a Christian, I did so after two weeks of worshipping every morning with street kids in in Zimbabwe, I was at the time, although I ended up actually praying my prayer when I was in Mozambique. I was a wealthy, educated Westerner, the whitest man in Africa. But after two weeks of worshipping with these little kids, I realized that I was the one in poverty. They had nothing by the world standards, but they had the one thing that at that moment seemed so valuable to me that I would surrender everything if I could just have that. They had Jesus. And that is salvation. And that is what comes to Bartimaeus. Without hesitation, giving up all he had that he might have Jesus. That's the game changer. That is a life that transformed. That's not a fuzzy feeling that lasts half an hour or a feel-good factor of being around people who are nice and friendly. That is a life-changing encounter. And that's what it means. It doesn't mean less than that. It cannot mean less than that. What's interesting is that Jesus here takes the side of the oppressed man, exposes the community who were so keen that Jesus would come to their town. He exposes in them, even though they are oppressed, they have oppressors' hearts. But they seem okay with it. It says that the people take the correction, they take the rebuke, and they praise God. Because it's Jesus, and he's coming to our town. Verse 1 is the first disappointment for the people of Jericho. It says this, that Jesus was going to pass through. Verse 1 of 19, yeah. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. He wasn't going to stay. He wasn't going to go to the town hall. Doreen's quiche was going to remain uneaten. Now, let's put this into contemporary context. Let's say we have a visiting speaker, you know, one of these big wigs, you know, somebody who, you know, has got a million hits on YouTube, you know, one of these books all over the place, big deal in the Christian world. And we think, well, the least we can do is have a community lunch, you know, and... 
I'm not even going to go for the, you know, the Asda price sausages. Do you know what I mean? I'm trading up. This is an important community lunch. And then the guy comes in. He does his message, which sounds vaguely offensive for most of the people sitting there. And then he leaves. And there's just, you know, everybody just looks around thinking, well, we're all just going to have to eat our body weight in quiche. Either today or over the next week, but it's going to happen. There's nothing else for it. How would you feel? How would you feel if he'd made that quiche? He didn't even eat a bite. You'd be offended. The people of Jericho were disappointed. This was, you know, they could, this was their moment to claim Jesus as their own. And he was just passing through. He wasn't going to stay. He wasn't going to stay. It was the only thing that could make this thing slightly tolerable for them is the fact that he was heading to Jerusalem and he was going to do the Lord's work. He was going up to Jerusalem to start a rebellion and deliver the people. And, you know, I'm disappointed he didn't come to our town hall, but, you know, he has higher purposes. He was passing through. What's amazing is that Jesus actually changes his plans. But not for the ones who made the quiche and the ones who were really excited about him coming to the town hall. He changed his, man, his plans for the local tax collector. Contemporary rabbis told, made a modification to the law in the first century, and they had a saying, and it was this, you can lie to three types of people, thieves, murderers, and tax collectors. That is how tax collectors were seen. What happened was the Romans picked a guy in the community and they said, this is how much tax we want from this town and we will, we will give you some muscle to collect it. And at the end of the year, if you happen to have collected a bit more, we're not going to ask any questions. Think about that. This is the man who means you can't feed your children properly. I mean, we can, these things can be sanitized over the years. This is the local drug dealer who destroys your child's life. This is the guy who beats up your husband, who humiliates him publicly because he can't pay his taxes. This is not, not a nice man. This is an oppressor. And Jesus stops for him. Wow. You have to feel the offense. Think about it in your street, in your community. But Zacchaeus had everything. He had money. He had power. 
He had status. He had everything except acceptance, community, connection, respect. He was an oppressor, but he had no one to comfort him. Zacchaeus shows that he is very keen to see Jesus because he runs. If we see, I think he's, verse, verse 4, he ran ahead. Uh, Middle Eastern men never run, ever. It was a shameful thing. Children could run, run. Middle Eastern men never ran. <laughs> some, some of you are looking at the West of Scotland men don't do much running either. <laughs> And for some of us, that is very true. <laughs> and he didn't want to go into the crowd because he was short. But I tell you what, if you were the local tax collector, you didn't want to go in the crowd anyway. You know? Big crowd of people, lots of shouting, lots of singing, knife in your back, muffled cry. Crowd walks away. Oh, don't know what happened. Wasn't me. You see what happens to the oppressor. He becomes isolated. He can't participate. He's not one in the community. He's not one of the crowd. He's hated. And so he climbs this tree, and we know that Jesus was almost out of Jericho. Because sycamore trees were not allowed to be planted inside the town because they were too big. And so they had to be planted at least, I think it was something like, well, I'm, I'm, going, to, I'm going to tell you the wrong figure. So they had to be planted a good distance out of town. But they had big leaves. And so Zacchaeus thought, I'll climb that one. I can hide in it. No one will see me. So Jesus was through the town. He was walking away. He had no intention, no intention of staying. And then he spots Zacchaeus. Now, if Jesus spots him, I don't know what you think when you think about Jesus, but what I don't think about is like Superman who has like x-ray vision. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> he was a man, fully a man just like you, if you're a man. <laughs> he was a human being, fully a human being, just like all of us. <laughs> if Jesus could spot Zacchaeus, everyone could spot him. He's the local tax collector. He's a banker with a bonus. <laughs> He's a Tory politician in the city of Glasgow limits. And he's trapped up a tree. Now you think about that. You think about that. Think about, I mean, we're, we're getting into election season. You know what's going to happen. There's going to be a politician on walkabout in some estate somewhere. They're going to take a wrong turning. It's going to be all over the news, you know. A mob shouting at them. Think what it must have been like. 
The shouts, angry shouts, we've got him, he's trapped. Maybe a crowd that's about to turn to violence. This is the guy, this is the guy who's stolen people's livelihoods, who's made them ashamed, destroyed their families. This is a horrible man and he is trapped. What does Jesus do? Jesus steps in. He steps in maybe to save his life, his actual life. Maybe if he'd walked on, the story would have ended very, very violently for Zacchaeus. So no wonder when Zacchaeus comes down the tree, he's happy. <laughs> he's been saved. What's interesting is that Jesus becomes the source of the anger. Do you notice in the story? All the anger, all the resentment, all the aggression that is directed towards Zacchaeus. In the moment, is shifted onto Jesus. This is the man. Doesn't this man know he's a, he's a sinner? This is grace. This is an action of grace. This is a demonstration of the kind of love that Jesus brings. Where there is a transference of shame and blame and anger from the guilty party onto the innocent Jesus. This is Jesus a couple of weeks from the cross showing the people of Jericho what he is about to do. This amazing transference. And when Zacchaeus comes down, he's happy. The only thing more annoying than a tax collector is a happy tax collector. <laughs> the only thing more annoying. Think about it. Just sub, sub, the, sub the thing that you're, the person, the type of people that you're most likely to hate <laughs> in there. The only thing more annoying than a Tory politician is a happy Tory politician. <laughs> or whatever it is. Come on, we've got to understand our own prejudices. Because we have them. Let's not kid ourselves. But Jesus understands that true repentance, he has already defined true repentance as not kind of weeping and wailing, although there is a time for turning away, but of joyful acceptance in being found. Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells the story of the lost sheep. There's a sheep out there in the wilderness, completely alone, 
unable to find its way home, unable to do anything, unable to make up for its mistake. And Jesus says this, does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. And he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me, I found my lost sheep. I tell you, in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents. What? Where's the repentance in that story? Where's the sheep's repentance? It's like, I tell you what, the sheep's repentance was this, that it allowed itself to be found. It allowed itself to be put on the shoulders of a very joyful shepherd who was going to happily carry it home to a party. And Jesus says, that's repentance. You want to know what repentance is? That's what it is. That's where it begins. Allowing God to find you. Martin Luther said that we should live lives of repentance. And for some, if you have the wrong understanding of repentance, that does not sound particularly appealing. But what if it means this, that every day in every situation, you allow God to find you and you allow his joy to become your joy? This is repentance for Zacchaeus. He comes down the tree and he's happy. He's happy. And then verse 8. We see... Sorry, I'm I'm being really annoying to our excellent people. Um... You see, here's the thing. Jesus never tells him to give his money away. Notice that. It's completely absent from the story. What they would have been expecting is what the Pharisees and the other rabbis would have done, which is that for Jesus to say to Zacchaeus, okay, Zacchaeus, you need to get yourself to Jerusalem to repent at the temple, make sacrifices. You need to give all the money away. This is exactly how much to give away. You need to get yourself a new job that is not corrupt. And if you do all that, I'll be back here in a year. And I'll see how things are going. And then maybe I'll accept your your repentance. That is what the religious authorities of the day would have done. And then maybe, maybe I'll come to your house for tea. As the song says. There's a complete absence of that from this story. There's no imposition. Jesus does not impose any laws or any even criteria for how he should outwork his repentance. He just says, I'm coming to your house. I need to stay with you. I want to be intimate with you. I want to share a meal with you. You see, repentance that is imposed from the outside is not really repentance at all. 
Just like giving that is coerced isn't really giving at all. Just like love that is not free isn't really love at all. So often when people come to Jesus, they're given a list of what their repentance should look like. And they're given no chance to figure it out for themselves. They're given no chance to to engage with the Holy Spirit that is now living within them. What, what, What does it look like for me? I think it probably tells you that we often don't believe that the Holy Spirit is really living in them. And then Jesus pronounces the salvation before the outworking of the repentance. I mean, that's, that's mental. You know, we, we've inherited a church culture that is concerned, you know, can we baptize this guy? Ooh. How far along is he? How, ooh, I don't know. Then we look, we look at the book of Acts and we see them baptizing people all the time and straight away. And we think, oh, I don't know how they could do that. Well, maybe they were just looking at what Jesus did. Pronounce the salvation. Salvation has come today to this house. Today. For this man, this man who was estranged from the community, this man who was alone and isolated, who was hated, this drug dealer, this loan shark, this violent, horrible man. Salvation has come to him, and he too, he too, he especially, is a son of Abraham. Abraham was a man who set out on a journey, and he didn't know where he was going, but he set out. And his willingness to set out was what made him righteous in God's sight. He is a son of Abraham. I'm believing God for many, many sons of Abraham in our city. Some of them will be comfortable with because they'll look like they're oppressed and will think, great, weren't we great to lift off their oppression? We might be part of the oppression. Some of them won't. Some of them will look like oppressors. They have to look like oppressors for the world really to change. Some of of them will make us incredibly uncomfortable. But they too are sons of Abraham. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you, God, for what you have planned for this city. Lord, there will be many blind Bartimaeuses who will be healed and restored. And there will be many Zacchaeuses, many who are oppressed and many who oppress. And Father, I ask for grace for us to be sensitive to what you're doing. 
God, deliver us from self-righteousness. Help us to understand that we all get in the same way. And we all need your grace to the same measure. Thank you, Lord, for what you're doing among us. Help us to grow in your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.